Hello. Um, I'm glad to be here with you this morning. Um, I'm grateful to Mr. Clay and for everyone to giving me this uh, precious amount of time to be able to speak to you. Um, if you don't know me, you're not missing a lot. My name's John Kane. I'm one of the members in the Savannah Church. Um, I'm going to be the first one to say I'm not a preacher. I'm not very good at it, and I don't necessarily enjoy it a whole lot, but um, I have a couple things that um, are a few small lessons that I've learned from the Bible that has helped me in some big ways, and so I, uh, I, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to share some of these small lessons with you and hopefully be able to encourage a couple of you in the ways that it's helped me. Um, when I first became a Christian, I was given some really good advice to adopt a book. Um, basically, you pick a book of the Bible, and you read it, and you read it again, and you study it, and you memorize it, and you uh, adopt it, and you make it your own, and you really just learn as much as you possibly can from this, this one single book. Um, and that helped me a lot, and so I picked the book of Philippians. Um, and so... When I first became a Christian, I started reading the Bible for my own and, and stuff, and I just read Philippians, and I read it again, and I studied it, and I read it a couple more times, um, and struggled with my dyslexia to be able to understand it, and there were some really good lessons in Philippians that have helped me a whole lot, um, and so I want to be able to share some of those with you um, this morning. Um, I always encourage other people to adopt a, a prophet, a gospel, and a, a letter, and, and so it's, it's really helpful to be able to just study one thing really, really in depth, and it kind of opens your eyes to the amount of lessons and the density that the Bible has of really rich uh, lessons. And so I want to be able to look at the, the letter to the Philippians this morning. Um, Philippi is a Roman city. Um, basically, Rome would use that to retire soldiers uh, to Philippi, and so they actually shared in Roman citizenship during this time. Um, just a little bit of context to Philippians. Um, obviously, it was written by Paul, and it was Paul and Silas, Luke, um, and then they also came across a young man named Timothy and started bringing him along, and the first place that they went to was Philippi. Um, but at night, Paul had a vision, and you can find this in Acts 16, of a, uh, a Macedonian man, and in the vision at night, he said, come and help us in Macedonia. And so they got up the next morning, immediately went to this, uh, the first city they went to was named Philippi. Um, and it was there they immediately were able to find a wonderful lady named Lydia, uh, a God-fearing woman, and she immediately heard the truth and heard the, the gospel and became a Christian. Um, he had a couple different things go on when he was in Philippi. Um, they were basically being followed around by this demon-possessed slave girl who was bringing some profit to her master by fortune-telling, basically. Um, and she was proclaiming throughout the city um, that these people are... Uh, 
bondservants of the Most High God and proclaiming to you the way of salvation. After following Paul around for a long time, he eventually got annoyed and casted out the demon. Um, and then the master of the slave girl was very upset at that because his, his means of some financial gain has now been gone. And so he sent Paul and the others to uh, the authorities. They beat them with rods, and after many blows, they threw them in prison. Um, and so this is one of the first things that they do here in, in Philippi. I heard a saying once where Paul goes into a new city. He asks, where's the, where's the place of worship? And then also, where's the prison? And he just kind of spent a lot of time there. Um, but in this prison, it was verse 25, about midnight, they were praying and singing hymns and praise to God. The prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly a great earthquake came, and the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately the doors were opened, and the chains were unfastened. And this jailer comes in, he sees that all the doors are open, he's about to fall on his sword, um, and Paul shouts out, wait, stop, we're all here. He comes in and asks, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And whether he meant that in a, in a physical sense or a spiritual sense, if you ask the Apostle Paul what you need to do to be saved, he's going to give you this answer. Um, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And he took them and washed their wounds, and he and his family were converted. Um, and so the jailer and his household were converted during that time as well. They were released from prison and were urged to leave the city um, by the officials. And so that's kind of their first run-in with Philippi. Um, and as we're looking at this letter to the Philippians, it's about 10 years after this that Paul writes this letter. Um, and a lot of things have happened since then um, Paul has had a rough time preaching the gospel. Um, and so he's had a difficult time. He's been preaching for about 26 years. Um, he's gone through a lot. He's now in prison in Rome. Um, and anytime that I study Philippians with somebody, I automatically go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And I read the, these few verses here. It says, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I've spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers of rock rivers, dangers and robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been on in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And he says, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. And so this is just, this is just Paul's life, all right? And there's some things that happened after he wrote this letter to the Corinthians um, since this. And so this is just who Paul is. This is what Paul has gone through. And this letter to the Philippians, um, I want to go ahead and read the first couple verses here. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi 
including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So here we have this introduction to the letter of Philippians. Um, and you look at verse 3 and 4, just talking about his thanks to God for them, for every remembrance. Um, and you, you remember the first time he went to Philippi, he was beaten and thrown in prison. Like, it, there's not... <laughs> but Paul has an immense amount of joy in them. And he says, I, I thank God and I offer up joy in my every prayer for you all. In verse 5, it says, because in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Um, this can mean a couple different things. First off, they are, they're salvation. They are participants of the grace of the gospel. Um, and then also, they themselves, their efforts in spreading the gospel since the first day. Um, something I want to be able to say here is that if we leave evangelism to gospel preachers, it's never going to get done. The Philippians were sharing the gospel from day one. We need to be able to teach what we know where we are um, from the first day. And then don't get discouraged. Keep on teaching as you're learning more, um, as you're growing. And then verse 6, For I am confident that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We need to be able to... This is, this is a, a fundamental part of Philippians, this idea of uh, this perfection, this, this perfect standard that we're supposed to reach. Um, and the confidence in here is not that they themselves will be perfect of themselves. It is Jesus who it makes perfect. It's confident in he that began the good work will perfect it, will complete it in that day. And so it's this idea of continual growth, continually growing towards this idea of perfection. Um, so in this letter to the Philippians, there is an immense amount of value and joy and excitement that Paul has. Um, despite everything that he's gone through, everything that um, he's experienced, everything he's going through currently when he's writing this letter, he is filled with such joy. Joy is mentioned 16 to 18 times, depending on your translation, throughout this four-chapter letter. Um, it is just so filled with joy, despite his circumstances. And I'm not entirely ignorant or oblivious to how hard life can be sometimes. And neither is Paul. You know, Paul's going through some difficult things. Paul has had a very hard life. But it's in spite of all of that, he's able to find such joy, such purpose. And I've gotten so much encouragement from him um, and so I'd like to be able to share a little of what I've learned from him in this and figure out how. How is Paul finding such joy despite all of this pain? 
So, Philippians chapter 1. The, the structure that this is going to be showing here is basically Paul's going to share something about himself, some circumstances that he's going through. And then we're going to kind of see how that is a bad thing or how that can definitely be perceived as a bad thing. But Paul's going to be able to turn it and use it and see how God can use this for good. Um, and so that's just kind of the structure. And Paul's going to go through about three or four different things in his life that uh, have this kind of conflict. And really, it's just a matter of perspective through this. And so the first one is starting in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting the Lord more because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So obviously right now, Paul is in prison in Rome. Um, and that's not a very difficult thing to see how that can be bad. Um, you can see that Paul is an amazing evangelist. He is somebody who is furthering the gospel everywhere he goes. Um, and you can kind of see if Paul's in prison, the, the gospel's kind of incarcerated. It's, it's, it's put to a halt. Um, he's not able to go around. He's not able to um, evangelize nearly like he would like to. And so his, his traveling is put to a halt as well. Paul being in prison is a major hit to the gospel. Um, and you kind of see that, that if he's in prison, he's in house arrest, he's possibly chained and shackled to these prison guards. Um, gospel's not able to do a whole lot right now. Um, and that's what we might think seeing this. But you also see what Paul says here is that his imprisonment has turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And he says that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else. So Paul's here in prison, shackled to these guards, not able to go anywhere, he kind of flips it around and says, hmm, I have a captive audience here. And so you know who he's talking to about Jesus? The guards that he's shackled to. The whole palace guard is spreading with this news about Paul being in prison and why Paul's in prison. It is spread throughout the whole palace guard. Um, I want to turn over to chapter 4, verse 22 real quick. It, when he's giving his farewells in this letter, he says that all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So word has spread from Paul in prison and has spread around so that now there are believers in the household of Caesar. Now let me tell you a little something about Caesar. This is Caesar Nero. This guy is a psychopath. He's the one that lit Rome on fire and blamed it on the Christians. He's the one that thought it was amusing to put Christians in the Colosseums with lions and tigers. He's the one that would stake Christians in his garden and light them on fire as torches in his garden. This is not a friend of Christ. He is a strongly opposed to Christians, and yet there are believers in his own household who are faithful to Christ, who are risking their own safety in order to send a farewell to these Philippians these, these Christians that they haven't met before. 
Paul's imprisonment has spread out so much to where it's been known to, to the, the whole palace guard and everyone else. And he says in verse 14 that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord more, because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. They're seeing Paul. They're seeing Paul in his circumstances. They're seeing the good that he's able to do and the joy that he's able to have in this. And it gives them courage to be able to speak the word of God without any fear. So that's the first point in Paul's circumstances. And that kind of gives you an idea of what this is going to be looking like throughout this lesson. The next one starting in verse 15. In verse 15 it says, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. And the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Alright, so we have these different people who are preaching Christ, and some have good motives. They're preaching Christ out of good motives, but then there are some who are preaching Christ out of envy and strife, hoping, or with, with selfish ambition, hoping to cause Paul distress. So you have, obviously, these people are preaching Christ with wrong motives. And they're trying, in preaching Christ, to hurt Paul while he's in prison. Like, talk about kicking a man when he's down. They're trying to hurt Paul and bring Paul distress through their preaching. So you think about Paul and the Christian leaders, um, if Paul's passing through a town or if Paul's in Rome, um, if, if you have the opportunity to talk to you know, your normal religious leaders or talk to the Apostle Paul, they would go to the Apostle Paul, right? They, just Paul is just so well known um, and, and such a good advocate of Christ. Um, and so you can kind of see the, the bitterness growing in these religious leaders. And they're wanting, and they're jealous of Paul's situation and who, who Paul is. And they're starting to think, okay, fine, you know what? Paul's going to convert 100 people. I'm going to convert even more. Um, and you hear Paul's response to this. Great. Go for it. He says in verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. He is just concerned that the gospel is being preached. That is his goal. That is his purpose. And that fills him with such joy. And this, this statement here, in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice, this is not Paul telling himself to toughen up and plaster on a fake smile. This is Paul's true passion. This is Paul's care and his love and zeal for the kingdom and his confidence that it pro will progress despite trials. Now his next circumstance, starting in verse 19, is a little bit darker. Um, in verse 19, it says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, through your prayers and the provisions of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I would not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, 
be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that would be very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Paul is waiting to be tried in Rome, and death is a very real possibility. That's something that is very real. And so obviously, Paul can die. This could be the end, and that would be awful. <laughs> and you think of also of all of Paul's influences that, he's, that he has on the churches. And all of those influences, his encouragement, um, his letters that spread around to the churches, they would all stop if Paul died. And so you think about the, the trials and the hardship that that would be. But then what does Paul say? He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Death is a gain to Paul. He would be able to be with Christ, and that would be far better. His fervent, exhausting work, his constant concern for the churches, would end, would finally be over, and he would be able to rest with God in peace, finally. And you just, I want us to be able to pause here for a second and be able to see Paul's deep conviction. It gave him hope. It gave him excitement. And it fueled his life on earth. And it gave him endurance to be able to overcome the trials and the hardships of life. He longed for heaven. So much. And I want to be able to, to challenge us with this. Like what Mr. Clay was saying this morning in class. We need to be focused on heaven. And I think this conviction and this true belief in heaven is something that is unfortunately rare. But it is incredibly necessary for Christians. And this kind of creates another struggle for Paul. In the same scripture... Um, and that is that he might have to keep on living. Um, he might have to keep on working. And obviously the continued work that he would do, his, his anxiety, his care for the churches that would continue. Um, and it brings up this word in verse 20. Shame. In verse 20 it says, According to my earnest expectation and hope, that I would not be put to shame in anything. But that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now he is about to stand before this trial. And like I said, death is a very real possibility. He is going to have to come face to face with death. 
And in that, he is going to have to speak out boldly about his convictions and the reason he is on trial. He is going to have to speak out boldly for Christ before Nero and his court. And I want to read verse 19 now. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, I don't think that he's talking about his deliverance from prison. This shame that he's talking about, that Christ would not be glorified in his body, that is his greatest fear. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, through your prayers and the provisions of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I would not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul is concerned about this shame that he would incur if he did not stand up for Christ. And that is a difficult thing, to be able to face. You know, Clay brought up the situation of an extreme where somebody puts a gun up to your head and you, you have to deny Christ or be killed. Um, and I think a lot of this, it can be a whole lot harder to live for Christ than it can be to die for Christ. But that's what Paul is having to do. In every aspect of his life, every aspect of his body, he must glorify Christ. That is his highest concern. And so this conflict that's in Paul, in verse 22, says, But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that would be so much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith, so your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus. This conflict that Paul has, Paul is alive, and therefore, God still has a plan for him. And I want us to be able to hear ourselves in this, and I want you to listen very carefully. If you're listening this morning, if you're here this morning, that means a couple things. Number one, you're alive. And therefore, God has a purpose for you. God has a plan for you, where you are in your life. God has granted for you this precious gift of life. And it is not a one-time gift. God did not create the world, spin it, and let it go. Every day is held together by His design and His purpose. And every day is an added gift of life. And that is because God has a plan. That is because God has a purpose for you in your life where you are. And Paul sees this 
as life being more fruitful for him right now, because that's where he's at. More fruitful for the kingdom. Verse 26, your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus. In this, to close off the last couple verses here, in verse 27, it says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you. That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the gospel, faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. There's this word here, conduct. Um, in Greek, it's politiuste, and you can kind of hear this word politic in that. He's saying that you need to conduct yourself politically. Act in a way worthy as citizens. And you remember Philippi is a Roman city. They can understand conducting yourself with pride as citizens of Rome. We can understand conducting ourselves with pride as citizens of America. But that's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying conduct yourselves with pride as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. We are not Americans, and these Philippians that he's writing to are not Romans. They are Christians. When the believers were first called Christians in Antioch, it was meant as an insult. They said that these people are so radical about this Messiah that might as well live with them. It is spot on. We belong to Christ. We live for Christ. We live in Christ. We need to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy as citizens of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you. That you are standing firm with one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation to you, and that too from God. In this, I kind of get this image of a football team, and they're all standing elbow to elbow, and they're, they're pushing on that padded uh, practice sled that the coach stands on to make it a little bit easier. And they're pushing against it, and if somebody's just kind of touching it, but not really pushing it very hard, you know, the whole team feels that. And the other thing I want us to be able to see here is that we have an opponent. We have an enemy that we're fighting against. And God gives us the church in order to face him. The last scriptures here, verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. 
I love the phrasing here, for you it has been granted. You kind of get this idea of a gift. God is giving you this gift, not only to believe, but God is giving you a gift to suffer. And he's saying that you're experiencing the same conflict which you see in Paul. Here in Philippians chapter 1, you're seeing these conflicts in Paul. And his hope is that you handle them in the same way that Paul is handling them. To be able to bring all glory to God in our life. To be able to close off um, my final hope in this and the takeaways that I hope you're able to, to grasp as you've as we've gone through just some very, very brief highlights of Philippians 1 is that we can be such self-focused people. We can be consumed with things that are just happening inside of our lives and we need to stop thinking of ourselves so much. We need to put our true focus on how God can be glorified in our lives and in our circumstances. Secondly, we need more faith in God. God is alive. And God is active. And we need to actually believe that. That God has purpose today in our lives. We need to be able to trust in God more. And we need more unity in one another. We need more unity in the church. In John chapter 17, verse 21, Jesus prayed that his believers would be one, even as he and the Father are one. God has given us his word, and he has given us the church. And neither should be underestimated or ignored. Life is hard. There are some real challenges that come up in life that we do not expect. And we need help. And we need to let God help us. And we need to let the church help us. These are God's tools. And he knows that we need help to be able to achieve the goal. And finally, we need more purpose in our lives. We need to be able to live and see purpose behind our struggles. Behind the things that we're going through. We need to be able to refocus ourselves on God and what we can do for the kingdom. I hope this has been encouraging, and I hope this can help and encourage some of you here. Um, if there's any need from anyone here, this is a good time to do that um, as we stand and sing this song.